For numbers five, we've got here the, the trial of jealousy. And this is a difficult chapter. It's really quite hard to really find out what some of the Hebrew phrases and idioms actually mean. And it's quite hard to imagine the actual situation that was in mind. So uh, what I'm going to suggest is uh, within uh, a certain degree of probability, I I'm not uh, saying this is how to view it, uh, take this uh, as a bit of a, a chat, a bit of a discussion, um, rather than something dogmatic. But what I think we can be sure of is that this whole chapter is talking about dealing with the, the failures of others. And chapter 4 is about the, the numbering of the Levites, and then chapter 6 goes on to a new topic about uh, the, the, the Nazarites. So then, in this chapter 5, we have three pieces of legislation. The first few verses about removing lepers from the camp, then about making reconciliation with your brother, and then this stuff about the, uh, the trial of jealousy. The common theme that those three pieces of legislation have is that interpersonal issues must be addressed. The lepers who had been concealed in the camp were to be removed, and uh, the issue must be faced. I say that because the command was given, get the lepers out of the camp, and they actually obey and do that. So presumably these are people who were not maybe so obviously leprous, and it's likewise, the legislation says there in the first couple of verses, those who are unclean uh, by dead bodies, well, you could touch a dead body and nobody actually knew you'd done it, or maybe your family knew. So it's talking about actually facing up to issues of personal uncleanness. And then, uh, starting from... Uh, verse uh, 6 down to verse 8 you've got this stuff about if you sin against your brother then you've got to put it right with him and recompense to him and th this is setting the, the scene I think for the, uh, the stuff about the trial of jealousy now it seems to me that interpersonal issues that is dealing with the failures of others and dealing with jealousy issues which are related to that these are the, the issues that break up relationships. These are what break up ecclesias, communities of believers, individual relationships. People assume, maybe, that time is going to heal. But in my experience, time does not heal. Uh, in fact, what happens if things are not resolved is that they fester, and then it all blows up into some very big breakdown of relationships involving attitudes which, according to the Lord's teaching, will exclude from God's kingdom. That's why Jesus seems to say that if you have something against your brother, then rush to put it right. See a sense of urgency in putting it right. Because if you don't, it's going to fester. Time, as I say, does not heal these things. Now, we come on then to, to verse 6. And he says there that if somebody trespasses against the Lord, against Yahweh, they must put these things right. But then in verse 7, it says that he must uh, give back plus one-fifth to the person against whom he has trespassed. So then, verse 6, trespassing against the Lord. Verse 7, trespassing against your brother. So then, what you do to your brother is what you do to God. That's the, the clear message here. And of course we remember the parable of the Lord Jesus where he says that in the last day he will say to people, when I was hungry you didn't feed me. And they'll say, what do you mean? And he'll say, 
insofar as you didn't do this to the least of my brethren. Our attitude to each other is our attitude to God and to the Lord Jesus. This is an absolutely fundamental teaching right through the law of Moses, right through the New Testament. It's absolutely fundamental. And that is why Christian life is intended to be lived in some level of community with other believers, because in our interaction with them, we are learning about our relationship with God. And that is why reconciliation with each other must have paramount importance to just say, well, we're not talking about it, we're not going to discuss with you, we're not going to meet with you, and even internally within ourselves to say, oh, no, no, look, I'm not going into all that again, or I'm not even going to mix with those people, etc. Look, these difficult people in the Ecclesia, and don't forget, you are seen by someone else as a difficult so-and-so, all those issues are given to us in order to develop our relationship with God. And even when there is relationship breakdown, all one can say is it must not be our fault. That there will be offences, causes of stumbling and upset, division. This is taken by Paul and the Lord Jesus as being inevitable. But woe to that man by whom the cause of offence comes or as Paul puts it, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. And he says that in Romans in the context of ecclesial life. So then, we come on then to the actual trial of jealousy. And it's often been said that uh, this is a, a kind of an example of where God is kind of down on women and where the law of Moses is against women. And that is not the case, because... The law of Moses, and I, I've written uh, about this, I can give you the links if, if you want. Uh, the law of Moses is absolutely different to most or any other contemporary law in terms of emphasizing the value of women. God is not against women, and the law of Moses was not against women. So we have to think through what's being said here in a bit more detail. Well, <clears throat> start off with... There were various teachings in the law of Moses about sexual immorality. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says quite clearly that the woman should be killed if she's guilty. Actually, this whole thing here about the trial of jealousy, as I see it, allows the woman to live if, she, if she's guilty. So, you see then that there were different ways of dealing with sexual failure in the law of Moses. The husband could simply divorce her, or he could kill her could burn her or stone her with stones or he could put her through this trial of jealousy with uh, as it seems to me uh, a miscarriage involved uh, and her being barren or of course he could just forgive her so the law of Moses was not as it is painted by some uh, just a black and white uh, set of legislation and it's not just with sexual immorality there's all kinds of other issues that within the law of Moses uh, there were different possible responses to various failures and various infringements and I think that that was in order and it is in order to help us to think through the responses we're going to make if there was only one law like kill her or divorce her or, or whatever then it would have all been a bit simpler but the fact there were these range of responses I think indicates that God made it like that so that they would actually think through how they wanted to respond. And in our day, 
we are faced, of course, with, with human failure within ecclesias, within people with whom we're in relationship. And how do we respond? There is not one set way to respond. There is not one uh, black and white, clear New Testament statement about how to deal with those who sin. There's a whole load of possibilities that one can do. Those that sin rebuke before all uh, is one thing, or chuck him out of the church. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of uh, different responses that are possible. The community in which I grew up uh, had a big issue about divorce and remarriage, though quite obsessed with it. And, you know, if, if you divorce and remarried, you're out. That's the end of it. Simple, black and white, if in doubt, chuck them out. You know, that, that's absolutely just a hard line. But that is not how God wrote the law of Moses. And that is not how God responds to human sin. Because we're all sinners. And you look at how one person sins, another person may do just the same thing. And God seems to respond in different ways. And we are asked to respond also, I think, in different ways. And there are levels of response. You can demand justice against those that sin against you. You can do so. But there is a higher level. And I actually think that the, the whole thing in Matthew 18 about if your brother sins against you, well, then you can take someone from the church with you and have it out with them, two or three witnesses, and then out for good. Yeah, but that's in the context of the very question how many times should my brother sin against me every day, and, and what should I do? And Jesus says, well, forgive him 490 times, 70 times 7. And then, in that very same context, the Lord talks about uh, taking two or three witnesses uh, um, if your brother sins against you, and if he doesn't hear you, chuck him out of the church. And I almost think that was said tongue-in-cheek. At the best, I think the Lord is saying that here's one way you can go, but really the best way is to forgive. This whole thing about the trial of jealousy comes out really in the life of Hosea, who was representing God and his relationship with Gomer, the prostitute. And she got pregnant by someone apart from him because they had this, this child, and he calls it Lo Ami. You are not mine. You are not my people. This is not mine. But he doesn't uh, take her through the trial of jealousy, doesn't kill her. He, in the end, forgives her although he has all the anger and the spirit of jealousy quite naturally coming up within him. So then there are different levels upon which we can respond to the human failure with which we come up against. And of course the big and obvious thing is that as we respond to it, so God will respond to us. You can take a hard line. You cross the line, that's it. You get the full weight of my judgment and waving Bible verses at you, and that's it. Any problem with that, and the Bible doesn't say that's wrong, any problem with that is that you've also sinned grievously and seriously. You have gone right over the line. And what do you want? You want God to do that to you? This is the, the whole point, I think. If God had given us just one, one clear-cut uh, statement about what to do with uh, people who commit certain sins, then, okay... We would just have to do it. But the fact he's given us a range of possible responses. And as I say, with sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, there was, within the law of Moses, a range of responses. Um, I think that is to teach us, as we keep on encountering failure amongst those we love, those we maybe are not so close to, uh, within the, the body of Christ, it is, I think, to lead us to the conclusion in the end 
that I must forgive totally and be as gracious as possible. Because as you go through life, you realize that you are desperate for God's grace. You look back on your earlier life, earlier sins that maybe you shrugged a bit at the time about and thought, you know, wrote it off as just human failure. As you get older, you realize the, the consequence of what you did. And also your ongoing sins, the sins that you do every day, you start to realize, I think, as you mature, that these are serious. This is not a little whoopsie or a shrug and, oh, yeah, well, forgive me for that, Lord, and on we go. You start to realize that sin really is a felt and painful offense against the God who so loves us. Well, it keeps talking about the spirit of jealousy, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with being jealous. God keeps on saying that he is a jealous God. And the extent of the jealousy, I think, is a reflection of the extent of the love which God has for us. Now, the, the critics or the cynics would say, this is also unfair because the woman doesn't have any right to uh, be suspicious about the, uh, the husband and put him through a, a trial of jealousy and doesn't he just get off pretty lightly well thinking about why the woman didn't have a right to uh, drag a, a man through the trial of jealousy I I'm sorry to say but we're reading the Bible through 21st century Western European uh, eyes and the majority of people throughout history have not lived with a set of glasses on that, that we have for us we would think oh poor woman like you know if she's suspicious about her husband maybe he's hanging out with other women I of course can't speak for every woman in every society at every point in time but my sense is that that was not the case that polygamy was quite normal was quite accepted if your husband got another wife you weren't necessarily just heartbroken. I remember years ago living in a small village in uh, in Africa, and I well before the days of email and all that, and mobile phones, and I used to write back to people in England, uh, and I told them, you know, I'm living with this uh, this brother, and um, he's uh, got uh, several wives, and they sort of accepted that, and I said, oh, but he's he's taking another one, younger one, and there were floods of letters to. Um, one of the wives who the uh, English people knew, oh, you poor thing, we're so with you, oh, we feel so sorry for you, it must be so awful for you to see him building another little hut in his village for this, uh, this new young woman to come, oh, you must be heartbroken, you poor darling. And she, I mean, this woman was an educated woman and she knew English, and she just laughed and said, you know what, I set him up with, with that girl. I'm really pleased that he's got another woman. I'm sick and tired of having to carry the wood, uh, carry the water, cut the wood. You know, I'm getting older. It just didn't, she didn't see it, how those uh, British uh, ladies saw it, but, oh, how awful. And it's not just in Africa. I remember many, many years ago now, uh, going out to a collective farm in uh, a, a, a part of Eastern Europe, and I, I was coming back on the bus with all these workers who were going back to their little uh, apartment complex where they lived, uh, women. They all sit on the back seat of the bus. And uh, this one woman was bragging about the, the young girls that her middle-aged husband was sleeping with. I mean, I don't mean kids or anything. I mean young women, let's say. And uh, she was quite proud about it. And really, and, and, and honestly, she was proud about it. Now, that is so difficult for Western people to sort of get their head around that one. It's like, oh, poor woman. 
No, not at all. It depends on your culture. It depends where you came from. So, because polygamy was permi- was permissible um, at this time, I don't think that the woman necessarily had this spirit of jealousy in the same way as a man did. That's my take on that. Then you think, well, didn't the man sort of get away lightly if he falsely accused her? Well, no, he didn't. Because in that case, he would have been deeply shamed. And in their culture, shame was, you know, a fate worse than death, really. And just to jump to the end of the, of the, uh, the chapter, verse 31, how it all finishes. The man shall be free from iniquity, that's if the woman's guilty, and the woman shall bear her iniquity. Now, I underline that 31. In what sense, then, was the man free from iniquity? What iniquity? What sin? Well, I suggest, and the only sin that I can think uh, is in view here, is the sin of having falsely accused her. If, in fact, she was uh, guilty, then he's free from that sin. But the minute he makes the accusation, it seems that he's under iniquity. Uh, that he's uh, held as guilty for doing this, but if it happens that he's right and she is guilty, then he's he's free from that sin. The implication is that if she is innocent, he is not free from his iniquity, and there is absolutely no verse 32 or you know next verse that sort of says, um, well. Uh, yeah, and then in that case, the man who's falsely accused his wife is to go and make a sacrifice for sin. I, I guess he could do that, but it doesn't say that. There is no such statement. The story ends, as it were, with the man bearing his iniquity. And so, actually, the man did not get away free. He bore his iniquity. He bore his shame for having made the, the false accusation, and there is no stipulated way of getting out of that. As I say, I'm not saying it was the unforgivable sin, but um, he, there is no statement here about a sacrifice that was to be made to, as it were, get him out of it. So then, the point is that if you falsely accuse somebody because of jealousy, This is a sin which is left here uh, as being pretty well uh, unforgivable or unforgiven. Uh, As I say, it can be forgiven, uh, but it was a very, very, very serious thing. And there again, we see a principle that comes right through to to us today, that there's a lot of slander. There's a lot of false accusation that goes around. And why is this? Because people are jealous. The connection then, that's assuming that the man is, uh, is guilty of falsely accusing his wife, he has got in this jealousy complex and therefore he has slandered her. And that is the root of slander. This is what causes so much upset uh, within ecclesias, between brothers and sisters, between persons. He slandered me. She slandered me. They said this about me and it wasn't true. And this is a big issue, huge issue. I would say the number one reason why communities of believers break up, why families break up, uh, it's because of this. Because he said something that's not true. She said something that's not true. And it eats away at people like a cancer. 
And why is this? Why, do, why is there this need to slander? Well, according to this, it's directly related to jealousy. And pushing the question further back, why are we jealous? It's because we're not secure in who we are for ourselves. It's because we, I guess, don't really believe that God looks at us as if we're absolutely wonderful. That God sees us as in Christ. Not that we are wonderful, of course, but that's how he sees us. Now, if we're secure in his love, then we don't need to be jealous of his car, her career, their kids, their nice house, uh, her apparent relationship with God, or, or whatever it might be. Um, you're, not, you're not so insecure, and therefore you simply don't have all these hang-ups which lead to all this slander. And I think that is, if we take nothing else away, we can certainly take that away with us. Now, verse 17, let's just go back a little bit to the actual ritual. The priest shall take the holy water in an earthen vessel, uh, and of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take it and put it in the water. Dust of the earth, earthen vessel, and a curse. This is all Genesis 3 stuff, isn't it? This is the, uh, the curse that was to come for disobedience. Made from dust, go back to dust. And why that allusion there? Well, we're all made of dust, and I, I think the point was that they were to all remember that I too am only made of dust. Right, verse 18, going on in the ritual, the priest shall take the woman before Yahweh, before the priest, uh, and let the hair of the woman's head go loose. Now, that's hard to interpret what that was getting at. You could say, oh, I was shaming her. Well, don't forget, she had not been proven guilty or innocent. I'm not sure it was shaming. I would argue the other way, because in Hebrew thought, as you see Paul specifically stating, a woman's hair was her glory. And a covered head was associated with shame. Now, uncover your head, let your glory uh, flow out, as it were. Uh, stand there in all your glory, in all your beauty. And Hebrew men particularly had, uh, so it would seem from uh, culture, uh, found female hair, head hair, uh, particularly attractive. And so this woman was to stand there, I think, in her glory. And if anything, that shows to me that she was presumed innocent to start off with. And that is how I think we have to approach, and here we take the principle for us today, that's I think how we have to approach all accusation against people. Innocent until proven guilty, and until, you could argue, until really shown to be guilty by God. And that's important. You might just think that's, that's, of course, natural, that someone's innocent until proven guilty. But the problem is that if uh, two or three of your friends say something bad to you about somebody else, you tend to assume that, uh, even though you don't know the actual case, you tend to assume that they're guilty. And you come to consider their case uh, pretty well assuming that they're guilty. Now, innocent until proven guilty is, as I say, not just quite so easy psychologically and emotionally to, uh, to, to do. But I think the, the example here is, is pretty clear. 
Well, I admit that uh, it does seem strange that, you know, if a husband gets this jealousy thing, even though there's no actual uh, sort of hard evidence that she's committed uh, adultery, then he can drag her through this whole thing. But actually, in most primitive societies, there is some kind of ritual. Going back to my time in Africa, uh, again, there were rituals in such cases when a man was suspicious about the loyalty of his wife. A woman had to jump into water or just do something and wish a curse upon herself if she was lying and if, in fact, she had been unfaithful. In Islam, you have this uh, very strongly. I forget uh, what it's called now, um, but... There's the same thing. If a man is suspicious of his wife, uh, the idea is that she has to go to Mecca, if she can, and if she can't, well, she just does it at the mosque, uh, and she reads out this great big curse upon herself, if she has been unfaithful. May I be barren, uh, and all, all kinds of other things. Um, may I burn in hell forever and ever, if I have been unfaithful. So there seemed to be a need in primitive society for something like this, and I think this whole thing is, this whole trial of jealousy, is to some degree a concession to human weakness and a psychological need. But in verse 21, we come to uh, a very difficult uh, thing, and that is, what was to happen to her? Well, in, in the AV it says that uh, your, may, your thigh will rot and your belly will swell if you have, uh, if you have done this. Now, what does that mean, your thigh to fall away and your, your body or your belly to swell? Well, the NEB, New English Bible, I think gets it right in rendering it, may you have a miscarriage. And that would appear, and this is what I say, that uh, I, I think it's impossible to really understand an ancient Hebrew idiom like this. But from what I have read, and um, that's only what I've read, nothing more, nothing less, uh, it would seem that it, this is an idiom for having a miscarriage. Now, that sort of makes sense, because the man is suspicious about his wife's faithfulness, and the, the cause of that would be that she is pregnant, that she's visibly pregnant. Let's say she's, what, four months pregnant, when she's without question pregnant. And he says, look, this couldn't have been by me. So who was it? So that would kind of make sense then. If she then was guilty, she drunk this uh, water, it became bitter inside her, and then she lost the child. That would kind of make sense. Now... That is uh, that raises a whole load of a uh, whole load of questions. This verse is, in fact, the, the dividing verse, the dividing line between liberal Judaism and standard, more conservative Judaism, which, of course, is totally against abortion uh, in any form. Uh, liberal Judaism, on the basis of this verse, would say, "Well, look, there is a case here of where a pregnancy was aborted." Uh, of course, you could say, yeah, well, it was aborted by God, because it wasn't that the water actually made her have a, a miscarriage. It was God who did this, this thing about the water. I mean, that was just uh, something visual that she drunk. Drinking water with dust in isn't going to give you a miscarriage. It was from God that the miscarriage came. But then, pushing the question a stage yet further back, that only happened because the husband put her through the ritual. Knowing that, if she was guilty, 
that God was going to abort that pregnancy. Now, all I can say is that that is a window onto this uh, vexed question of, uh, of abortion. Uh, and I, I know it's, a, it's, an extremely, uh, it's an extremely hot topic, and it's so hot that nobody wants to talk about it. So I'm just, uh, because I'm not making a special point about it, it's just that it's here in the chapter before us, and so I simply raise this as um, another window onto the whole question. Life is ultimately God's, uh, and he can give it or take it. Uh, but in this case, the husband no knew the consequence if she was guilty. And so he chose not to forgive her and to put her through this, and God would have gone through with this. Now, I would say that um, if the woman was, as I'm suggesting, say four months pregnant, she was visibly pregnant, even today, uh, when women are four months pregnant, there's well over 90% chance that they're going to go to term. In other words, that they're not probably going to uh, have an, a natural uh, abortion, that the, uh, the child will be born. And I, I can't really prove this, but my, my sense would be that the human race has degraded somewhat since those days and that uh, women were probably generally stronger back then, I've no doubt they were, and there were probably far less uh, natural abortions anyway. And so if she went through this thing when she was visibly pregnant and then she lost the child, it would have been seen as definitely being the hand of God and not just bad luck or coincidence. So then, verse uh, 23. The priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. Now, the bitter water. Let's just get something clear. The water was just water. And in verse uh, 24, it says that if she is guilty, then the water will become bitter. The water will become bitter. And uh, <clears throat> that's uh, that said somewhat else. Um, so, uh, I just can't see the verse, but uh, that, that is said twice, that the water becomes bitter if she is guilty. So then, the bitter water is the water of condemnation. And if she was guilty, then the curses would be blotted out by her drinking the water of condemnation. So, as I say, this actually is merciful to the guilty woman, because she wasn't being stoned, as per Leviticus 20, verse 10. Here, she actually has the chance to drink to her condemnation, and at least her life is spared, and she can go on with her life and have relationship with God. Now, that is uh, opening a big sort of uh, theme of condemnation being removed by condemnation. And in the context of the breaking of bread, you sort of have that in 1 Corinthians 11, where in the context of all this kind of thing and of drinking a, a cup from the Lord, we are told that if we would only judge, the AV says condemn is the idea, uh, if we would only condemn ourselves in this life at the breaking of bread and self-examination, then we will not be condemned. That is at the last day. This is the great paradox, that by condemning ourselves now in our self-examination, we shall not be condemned at the last day. Now, 
still sticking on the uh, breaking of bread. We are given a cup of wine to drink. Pretty well every other time when the Lord gave a cup of wine to a nation or a person in the Old Testament, this was the cup of condemnation. A cup of wine was given to Babylon and all the other nations in Jeremiah's time, and they had a drink of it. Uh, Babylon several times has said, it's written that she drinks the, uh, the cup of wine from the hand of the Lord, which is the cup of condemnation. It's a bit funny, isn't it, that Jesus uh, designed the ritual of breaking bread to include us taking the Lord's cup and drinking it. And the great paradox is that by recognizing by that act that I am worthy of condemnation, the cup of condemnation turns into a cup of blessing, the cup of blessing which we bless. But the problem is, if you don't examine yourself, and if you will not recognize your own moral failure, then it turns out that, as Paul says in Corinthians, we are drinking condemnation to ourselves. So it doesn't turn into a cup of blessing. It remains the cup of condemnation if you don't realize that it's the cup of condemnation. Now, all this whole incident uh, with the trial of jealousy is looking forward to God as the, the jealous God who gave Israel really this cup. And he talks in Isaiah 43 about how Israel had been condemned by him, and yet through that condemnation he was now able to receive them back. And he uses the same phrase in Isaiah 43:25 when he talks about how he is going to blot out their sin because they have committed, uh, because they have been condemned, and now he can blot out their sin. That's the uh, same words here as um, the curses being blotted out by the water of bitterness, the bitter water, the the condemnation. So then, all we can say is that God is a jealous God. Israel were unfaithful, and they had to go through this. They had their condemnation. And yet, through that, through accepting that, they shall be saved. And this is, I think, what will have to happen to the last generation of Jewish people, to accept that the condemnation was just, uh, because of uh, their rejection of the Lord Jesus. And then, through that, they shall be saved. And it is the same with us. And if we're going to keep hanging on to our own righteousness, that I am basically not a bad guy, just a few slip-ups, but I'm not a bad kid, the point is, yes, you are. You are a bad person. You have sinned grievously. But the wonder of it all is that it doesn't stay there, that by recognizing that and recognizing the justness of your condemnation before God, you will not be ultimately condemned. And that is the, the, the greatest paradox of, uh, of all time. Now, uh, verse 28, if the woman is innocent... She should be free, um, which I take as being free from the, uh, the, uh, the, the curse of the water, uh, of bitterness, um, and shall conceive seed. What I don't know is whether this thing about she shall conceive seed, whether that's a command, in other words, she shall go out and conceive seed, or whether it's uh, a prophecy, she is going to have children. Whatever, to, to conceive children was in the context of that woman at the time, 
That was the greatest honor that a Hebrew woman could have. Now, if it's a command, then, of course, the husband who had had this uh, jealousy attack and had shamed her, he couldn't uh, divorce her, he had to sleep with her, he had to have a child by her. So, again, it's designed to bring the couple back together. And, as I say, the, the whole thing finishes there in, uh, in verse 31 uh, by saying that the man shall be free from iniquity only if, only if she is innocent. If she is not innocent, then he has to bear that iniquity. And just to repeat what I said earlier on, this is really a, a terrible thing. But those who slander others because of their jealousy, they really just have to bear that. As, as I have seen sadly for the rest of their lives because it seems people find it so hard to repent and before we all start pointing the finger at other people who we know have slandered maybe us or other people don't forget that these processes go on within each of us that how many times have you caught yourself imagining evil being done by somebody else imagining that they this that or the other how many times in conversation have you implied something or even said something about another person that is not true when if you're honest you've got a jealousy problem with that person and it, it's no good saying oh no 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 I haven't I, I have and I believe you have well we all have and it's as simple as that and we're here of, of course to remember above all the Lord Jesus and there is no need for any of this, if you are really persuaded of the most basic element of the gospel, that God loves me, and he gave his son to die for me, I've been called to him, I'm in Christ, I'm clothed with Christ, and by God's grace I shall live forever in the kingdom, my sins are forgiven, I am free in him, and I am redeemed. Now, if that basic teaching of the gospel and its most elemental level, that good news, is really believed by us, then all this jealousy business slander won't be an item, and neither will any of these trials of jealousy or whatever, uh, dragging people through business meetings and discussions and correspondence and emails and the rest of it, because quite simply, you'll just forgive them.